evening and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law and the Virtual Justice Project. We thank you for joining us this evening. Juvenile justice systems nationwide and in North Carolina have made extraordinary improvements over the past two decades. Incarceration rates have been cut in half and juvenile arrest rates are at historic lows. However, there is still much work to be done. African-American youth, who are perceived as being older than they are and are viewed by society as being less innocent, are still more likely than their white peers to be subject to harsh discipline, and this leads to more frequent interaction with the criminal justice system. And for youth involved in the criminal or juvenile justice system, recidivism rates remain unacceptably high. According to a report from the Center for Juvenile Justice Reform, rearrest rates for youth on probation are 50% or greater in many states, and two-thirds of incarcerated youth are rearrested within two years of release. What efforts are being made in North Carolina to address these issues? On this evening's show, we're going to talk about the state of juvenile justice in North Carolina. And we have joining us for this discussion, Dorothy Harrison Mitchell, who is a clinical assistant professor at North Carolina Central University School of Law and the supervising attorney of the NCCU Law Juvenile Law Clinic. Also joining us is Austin Long, who is the juvenile project attorney with the North Carolina Office of the Juvenile Defender. Thank you both for joining us this evening. Thank you for having us. Thank you. So first, I want to ask each of you how you became involved or interested in juvenile justice and what you do. And Professor Harrison Mitchell, let's start with you. Okay. So how I became involved, the first attorney that I worked for when I graduated from law school actually handled juvenile delinquency matters as well as a lot of abuse, neglect, dependency matters, which are both juvenile court. Um, I actually had no thought while I was in law school that I would actually handle those kind of cases, but that's, she handled them, so I had to handle them. And so that's how I first became involved. But once I started working with the juveniles and then the parents in Abuse and Neglect Dependency Court, I found that juvenile court was my, was my area. Um, that because it was, I was able to help those clients in a way that I couldn't help other clients, like my regular adult criminal clients, um, and then on the civil cases that we handle, like family court cases, I just couldn't help them in the same way. And I appreciated being able to help them in those ways. And, and I know we'll talk about those later, but some of them would be like um, so they would have substance abuse issues or mental health issues or the issues with domestic violence in the home, um, homelessness, just different things, things that was going on at school. And so I found that I really enjoyed being able to help the whole person as opposed to just that case that I was involved in, trying to get them a not guilty or a lesser offense or something like that. So that's how I became involved. And then now, being back at the school teaching in the juvenile law clinic, um, because I have worked so much in that field for so many years since I graduated, um, I've been become known as one of the few attorneys that focus primarily on the juvenile court area 
And so I was brought over to the law school to revamp the juvenile law clinic. And so now I, you know, supervise the students and representing those kids in court. And can you talk a little bit about how the clinic works and the role that the students play? Yes. So um, with our juvenile clinic, we receive cases from the public defender's office here in Durham um, per court appointment. So all juveniles, um, by way of being a juvenile, are considered to be indigent. So and unlike in adult court where a person would have to fill out the financial affidavit and actually qualify for court-appointed counsel, juveniles automatically qualify for court-appointed counsel. So their case goes to the public defender's office, and then they assign the cases out. And so we're one of the um, assigned attorneys or the group that will receive those cases. So the cases are specifically assigned to the clinic, and then I have students who are practicing under what we now refer to as the third year practice rule per the state bar, which allows them to be able to handle live clients, live cases under my supervision. So they actually serve as the attorney for the um, juvenile and I just supervise them in representing that, that client. So they handle everything from the beginning as far as opening the file up all the way to the end um, completely through disposition. Okay. And Attorney Long, tell us how you got interested in juvenile justice and, and what you do now. Sure. So I actually became interested in law school. As one of my electives, I took juvenile justice, and that really opened my eyes to the area, and I knew that that was something that I was interested in doing after law school. And so once I graduated and I started working, when I went into private practice, I was on the court-appointed list. As you heard Dorothy talk about juveniles being automatically qualified for court-appointed counsel, I got on that list, and I started working in that area of juvenile delinquency as well as abuse, neglect, dependency, and termination of parental rights cases. And that really sparked my passion to work in that area. Number one, because as Dorothy mentioned, you get to make more of a difference in their lives and it was really for me about families mm -hmm. even though you're representing the juvenile in a case that involves a delinquent act that's based on a crime that if they were an adult you're really dealing with their whole family their whole you know their education their their mental health whereas like Dorothy mentioned in um, adult court you don't necessarily get an opportunity to get into all those areas so that's what really sparked my interest in working in that area. Right now I'm working, as you mentioned, with the Office of the Juvenile Defender as a project attorney under a grant uh, program that we were awarded by the Federal Office of um, Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention. And under that grant, we are doing trainings all over the state, local trainings. We're taking the trainings to them on race the age as well as juvenile justice overview of the, the overview of the delinquency process because what we find in especially some of these smaller jurisdictions is that a lot of attorneys that get on the court appointed list they're new attorneys either just past the bar or they're either new to the juvenile area and because there's limited attorneys maybe in that area that even are interested in getting on that list that the um, training is 
low. They don't have a lot of training um, and they can't necessarily afford the training that is out there for juvenile justice because it may be in another area of the state. They can't afford to travel and they don't have the money to pay the registration fees. So that's part of what we've been tasked with is to provide local trainings to going to the jurisdiction. The other thing that we're doing under the grant is assessing what the requirements are to be on the court appointed list for juvenile defenders. And again, as I mentioned, what we find is because there's so few attorneys and it's a smaller jurisdiction, even though their caseload may be smaller than someplace like Durham or Wake, they still have enough cases that they need a certain amount of attorneys but they don't want to make those qualification requirements too high because then they wouldn't attract enough attorneys that's needed to do the work. So part of what we're doing is determining what those qualifications are and some jurisdictions are already working with indigent defense services to revise those qualifications and uh, make training part of that and in assessing what these requirements are it helps us determine what are the training needs. So it's interesting that there are some lawyers out there who might be interested but don't have that background or that training in. And I can't help but think about the clinic that you run, Mm -hmm. Dorothy, and how important that is in light of what you were just saying. Right. And so I wanted to touch on that. So the training that she's talking about or the qualifications or the requirements for someone to be on that list to handle juvenile delinquency cases, generally across the board, it would include things like a certain number of CLE um, that they've gone to that involved that's specifically about juvenile delinquency court. Mm -hmm. Continuing Um, legal education for those (laughs) non-lawyers. Continuing (laughs) legal education, yes. And then a certain number of observation hours in juvenile delinquency court. Um, a mentor that's Mm -hmm. generally a requirement and so what she's speaking about with IDS indigent defense services they we have wanted to try to make it a uniform uniform qualifications across the state and so I'm actually the vice chair on the indigent defense services commission too and one of the things that I advocated for and was successful in was getting it to be a requirement in every district or allowed in every district that if there are students who have participated in a clinic in the juvenile delinquency clinic or juvenile law clinic that they have done all of that mm-hmm. they've met all of those requirements already or those qualifications and so they should be able to come out and get right on a court appointed list which is really good for students because a lot of them think they don't they won't hang their own shingle won't open up their own office and so that's an area where they can they've actually gotten a lot under their belt beforehand and they can go out and immediately work in the juvenile courtroom um, right out of law school Um, the other thing is that they have gotten all those what I what I tell students you've gotten all those jitters out of you while you're in school and under the supervision of someone versus trying to learn it and figure it all out on your own when you get out in practice because what we've found and um, Austin has been speaking to is that there are a lot of people who may just jump on the juvenile court list or the juvenile yes the juvenile delinquency list just because they know that that's another list and that's a way to make money but they have no clue how different it is in juvenile court as opposed to regular criminal court because juvenile delinquency court is really a civil courtroom but it has all the 
crim- the crimes are what are the juveniles are charged with. They what they would be considered crimes if they were committed by an adult. But those are used to um, adjudicate them as delinquent. Okay. So people think if I've done criminal court with adults, I can handle juvenile delinquency court. Not the case, because we have with adjudications versus guilty or not guilty. Then we have disposition versus sentencing. And the disposition in juvenile court is very different, and that's what we both have been speaking about. It involves all kinds of things, like what are their needs? What are the child's needs? Not necessarily what do we need to do to punish them, but what are their overall needs so that they can be a productive member of society as opposed to a delinquent juvenile? Well, let me just you know raise, raise this question then with respect to uh, the qualification and training of, of, of attorneys uh, and for our audience, uh, just what are the differences? Uh, because you would think that the things that you just mentioned would apply to uh, adult uh, defendants uh, as well as, as juveniles. So what is it that uh, creates this specialty as it relates to uh, juveniles and, and as I understand it, now, beginning in January, we're talking about those who are 18 and, and under uh, who would be qualified as, as juveniles. Well, first, the, the law goes into effect December 1st of this year. So it's December 1 of 2019 with raise the age. So then it will be our juvenile court actually involves kids from the range of 6 years old to 16 years old. So right now, and I always tell students, it says 16, but the day they turn 16, they're considered to be an adult. So it's really 6 years old to 15 years old. Um, and then when raise the age goes into effect in December, it will go up to 17, because as soon as they turn 18, they will be considered um, adult. For and and for our audience, what, what is the difference in the way that, uh, that, the, uh, that the juvenile is treated as opposed to uh, the treatment afforded to uh, those who are 18 and over? Well, there's quite a few differences. So I'll start with um, first, at the initial stage, say there, there's a crime that looks like it's being commi- that's, in committed, that's being committed, the police come up. If, as soon as they find out what the age of the person is, if that kid, just putting it frankly, if it's a kid 15 and under, they have to contact a parent before they can take them into custody. Um, and then from there, it's all kind of differences. So it would stem, stem from there being, if, if they're between certain ages, if they're being questioned, the parent has to be present in order for them to be questioned. And that, any, that even includes those juveniles or those children that are 16 and above. Um, and then they're charged with what would be a crime, but that charge goes to a court counselor And then the court counselor has to do an assessment of the case. So they will talk to the juvenile, gather all kind of information, do what's called a risk needs assessment. So in that assessment, they're going to look at what are the needs of this child, what are the risks involved with this child, say if there's been some gang involvement, all of these different things, what are their mental health needs, what's going on with them at school, what's going on with them at home, kind of all of those different things. But as it relates to the crime, 
and and I'm on the radio and I'm putting my fingers <laughs> up with my two the, the crime um, what would be a crime if committed by an adult um, so the court counselor gathers information from the juvenile speaks with the victim in the case and other witnesses the police officer to determine if this case should even go to court so even though they've been charged theoretically I should mm-hmm. say They've been taken into custody by the police, and then the case has been transferred over. It hasn't officially become a juvenile court matter yet. So the court counselor has a lot of control at the very beginning stages of a juvenile delinquency case. Actually, they have a lot of control throughout. That's right. Um, And so they will assess that case and determine if it should go. And there are certain offenses like murder, high rate, the higher level rape charge, those sex offense charges, those cannot be what we call diverted. So the the court counsel can decide for any of those lower cases, say it's a larceny case, and they say, oh, yes, they might have taken the, the wallet, but they gave it back. They got it back. So the court counsel will decide, I'm not sending this to court. Sending it to court would include a petition being filed. So in juvenile court, it's a petition as opposed to a warrant. And so then that is what commences the entire juvenile delinquency case. It goes forward that way. And then it, from there, it's a lot of differences as well. But I'll, you know, I'm sure we'll get to some of those. But the court counsel will make that assessment early on, and then it flows from there. Okay. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we've been talking with Professor Dorothy Harrison Mitchell. She is a clinical professor at NCCU School of Law and the supervising attorney for the NCCU Law Juvenile Law Clinic. And also we have with us in the studio Austin Long, who is the juvenile project attorney for the North Carolina Office of Juvenile Defender. So we'll take a quick break. We'll be right back. We hope you stay with us. I'm Nastasia Harris, a second-year law student at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and this is your Virtual Justice Spotlight. Most people are unaware that they have the right to refuse to answer questions from a police officer. You don't have to tell the officer where you are going, where you have been, or whether you have had anything to drink. The Fifth Amendment to the United States Constitution states that no person shall be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against himself. This means that a person cannot be forced to reveal any incriminating information about themselves, even if they are asked by law enforcement or in court. The Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination covers not only responses that are directly incriminating, but also responses that could lead to the discovery of incriminating evidence. This right, however, is not to be confused with the idea that a person has a right to silence at all times. In some situations, police may use silence itself as incriminating evidence without violating a person's Fifth Amendment right. The Supreme Court has held that a person must explicitly assert the right to silence without being warned by the police or advised by a lawyer. A person will invoke their Fifth Amendment right by merely stating, I invoke my Fifth Amendment right to remain silent. Virtual justice at the NCCU School of Law is the intersection of technology and the legal clinical program. I'm Nastasia Harris. Thanks for listening. (music) 
And we're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson, and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking with Professor Dorothy Harrison-Mitchell, who is the clinical professor and supervising attorney at the NCCU Law Juvenile Justice Clinic, and Austin Long, who is the juvenile project attorney with the North Carolina Office of Juvenile Defender. And we've been talking this hour about juvenile justice in the United States, and more specifically, here in North Carolina. And right before the break, Dorothy, you were talking about uh, the differences between how juveniles or children are treated when they are involved in, in crimes versus adults. And Austin, I wanted to ask you, can you talk just about the circumstances of young people that would make it reasonable to treat them differently. So when we think about the development of youth and their brains and just the exercise of judgment and why it makes sense that we do treat them differently when they're involved in the, in the criminal justice system. Well, just as kids, as juveniles, even as, as parents and aunts and sisters and brothers, we treat children differently because they're gonna misbehave, they make mistakes. And as you alluded to, there's lots of research now that tells us that their brains don't fully develop until they're 25. So that alone is enough reason to treat them differently because the, that front lobe of their brain that has to do with reasoning and impulsivity, it's not developed. So they're going to do things that um, adults wouldn't do or know not to do, let's say that. Um, so, and because they're in their families and they're dealing with trauma and all types of, of things, um, mental health issues, behaviors, that they need to be treated differently. That, that alone, I think, is a, a big reason mm -hmm. for them to be treated differently. And most of the children who are involved in delinquency court actually come to the table with all kind of mental health issues or diagnosis, like ADHD, ADD, autism, or various things that they may not even know they have. And so unlike, and one of the, and, and, um, Professor Jordan was asked the question about another, some differences, another difference would be they're treated in a more holistic approach or a more, more holistic way in juvenile court as opposed to adult court, where it's just about sentencing them, punishing them, you get that slap on you, you did this wrong, you need to pay the consequences for it. Where in juvenile court, it's about, okay, they have ADD or ADHD or whatever. Are they getting treated for it? Have they been on the proper medication? One of the things that happens immediately is that they're assessed. They, have get, they go through a mental health evaluation to determine if there are some needs that have not been addressed or if there are some that have been addressed but they're not being fully addressed or addressed appropriately. Um, they also come to the table, like you said, with a lot of substance abuse issues, um, that, and those can be treated. Of course, we have drug treatment court and things like that for adults as well, but automatically all of those things are going to be assessed and addressed in juvenile court. Um, they also oh. deal with trauma, and so mm -hmm. we address those things, all of those different things that deal with the whole person as opposed to just what they did, and we need to punish them for what they did. Now, what about the, uh, the responsibility of the parents uh, for the uh, conduct of their, uh, their children, particularly 
where their children go out and uh, are engaged in uh, serious Mm -hmm. uh, criminal offenses. Well, the parents are involved. They actually become, they get placed on a court order in which they have to participate in their child's juvenile delinquency matter. So not so the notice that is sent out to the juvenile telling them that they have to appear in court, those that same notice goes to the parent or the guardian um, for that child. So they have to participate in the actual proceedings. They have to they're under a court order to take them to all take the child to all their appointments, make sure they go to school, like all of those different things. That's what happens once they become involved in juvenile delinquency court and the court orders that. Now before that. The, they could be liable civilly, possibly the parent could, um, but they're not going to be charged criminally or anything like that unless it's a contributing to the delinquency of a minor or something like that or aiding and abetting um, in some way. But they're, they're involved and they're, they're expected to be responsible for making sure that the child goes to all the different things. And if they don't, they can actually be show caused and held in contempt of court and put in jail or fine, just like any other kind of contempt of court action. If they don't show up or if they don't take their kid to the appointments or they're not home for the appointments to meet with the court counselor, all of those different things. So that's one of the things we talk to our clients about all the time. Not only have you gotten yourself involved in court, now you've gotten your parent, your mom involved or your dad involved, and they're having to take off time from work to get you to all these appointments and bring you here to court. And a lot of times, a lot of times, the parents are getting fussed at by the judge, some if not as much, sometimes more than the kid is because the court recognizes that a lot of what's going on with this child is because the parent is not being the best parent they could be for this kid. Well, you know, the other question I think that, that I've, I've run into when representing uh, juveniles is the uh, extent of the confidentiality uh, which exists between the uh, child who is the client yes. and the attorney and the kind of shield uh, that prevents uh, the uh, attorney from uh, fully engaging with uh, parents about matters that would otherwise be pre uh, protected by the attorney-client confidentiality. Uh, how do attorneys deal with that issue in light of the description that you just gave? It is difficult. You want to? Sure. It is difficult, and I think that one of the first things you need to do is establish that rapport both with the juvenile and the parent, and you really have to have that conversation and explain to the parent that you are representing the child right. and the juvenile and that them being involved in all the conversations um, could affect the outcome of the case. Right. And uh, additionally, I think it's really important for the juvenile to build that trust with the attorney, knowing that they can be completely open and honest, and what they say will be held confidential between them and their attorney. So that helps the attorney better represent the juvenile, because they're going to get more information, they're going to build rapport and really be able to help the juvenile. Most of the times, I think parents, um, they're still going to have that influence on their child, but they tend to respect and understand the attorney when the attorney takes that time. I mean, it, it takes some time, mm -hmm. and a lot of times in court, 
the attorneys don't have that type of time initially just meeting their client, but they really need to take that time to establish that relationship and rapport with the parents, guardian, whoever it is that um, the child uh, lives with. So I think that another thing that attorneys can tell them is that this is a part of the requirement as being an attorney. This is what my license says I have to do. And it's also um, beneficial for your child. Right. That's actually one of the most difficult concepts for students to grasp is, okay, I know I represent this child, but his mom wants to sit in on the meeting. And so I tell them you have to just be firm with the client, our attorney-client privilege is between us and your child, and that's difficult. I mean, it, most parents are like, my baby is 12, and you want to talk to him? I mean, I'm a parent myself, and I would feel some kind of way if somebody is trying to talk to my child without me being present. So because I am a parent, I can relate and I can understand that. So that's difficult for a lot of students to, you know, to understand that. Mm-hmm. The other part that's different about juvenile court is that process that I was talking about with the court counselor speaking with all these persons before something actually gets to court, we tell clients, one of the first things we tell clients is, do not discuss your case with anybody. And with juveniles is not even your mom, not even your dad. But then one of the first persons they get they have to talk to is the court counselor. So we have to kind of, you know, explain to them that, okay, when you're talking to the court counselor, you do need to be frank with them because they're deciding whether or not your, what's going to happen with your case moving forward, what their recommendation would be about your case moving forward. So you do need to be frank and honest with them. And a lot of times before we get them as a client, they've already done a lot of that with the court counselor. But that information and those things that they've discussed with the court counselor can't be used against them, can't be voiced in court until we get the disposition, which is sen- like sentencing in adult court. So it is important for them, like Austin said, to be frank and open and honest. And usually during that meeting, their parent is sitting in there. So they're meeting with the court counsel with their child. And then when they get to us, it's like, well, they didn't tell me I couldn't sit in when he was telling all the facts and the details about the case before. Why is it a problem? And then we, like you said, we have to establish that rapport with them. Hopefully we build their trust. And some of them, quite frankly, will say it's not happening. And then others are like, okay, good. I trust you all. I appreciate that you, you know, you are able to stand firm in this position. And you're, that means to me that you're going to do your job and you're going to do the best for my child. Yes, I do actually know of instances where the attorney has had the court to order and speak to the parents yes. to say, let the attorney talk to your child alone. Mm-hmm. It has gotten to that point before. And, and as a parent, I can't, I mean, my children are all, you know, kind of grown now, mm-hmm. um, kind of grown. <laughs> but I can imagine when, you know, when they were young, that would have been, especially if this is a new situation for you, you haven't been right. involved in the, in the system and, you know, you want to be protective of your, of your child. So we've talked about the differences in how young people, children are treated in the criminal or juvenile justice system as compared to adults. And we've talked about why that is in terms of the development of the brain. And that leads us right into the raise the age. And so, Dorothy, as you mentioned, as a law currently stands, if you are 
15 or, or younger, so between 6 and 15, you're treated in the, or adjudicated in the juvenile justice system. Mm-hmm. But once, if you're 16, then you're treated as an adult. But as you noted, Austin, it takes a long time for the brain to develop, maybe up to the age of 25. And so we in this state have 16-year-olds and 17-year-olds being treated as adults. Can you all talk about the the raise your age legislation and am I correct that North Carolina was a last state the very in the last. country? And and why that was? What where was the resistance, especially knowing all of the research that goes into brain development of, of young people? I'll say just generally at first, my first comment is that I think that some people in general, I've even had this conversation with my mother, they think that once kids are 15, 16, 17, that they're not, they know what they're doing. They know right from wrong. And some of that may be true, but they don't have the development to make good decisions in the heat of the moment, let's say. So I think that's one reason why it's taken North Carolina as well as other states that long. Um, secondly, from my understanding, it had a lot to do with law enforcement and the prosecutors. Um, not feeling like they would be able to prosecute those higher-level felonies for 16- and 17-year-olds, who some people think know exactly what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And there was some resistance to that from um, law enforcement and prosecutors. But they got them on board, and I think, because of some of the nuances that are in the final law, that was to satisfy all the stakeholders in terms of being comfortable with raising the age. What are, what are some of these nuances that? Sure. Mm-hmm. So um, one of them that I think was one of the last things that was added in is that once an adult, always an adult, mm-hmm. which means that once they've been, they've had a conviction in adult court if they're 16, 17, and they get a new charge after December 1st, and they've been convicted of a felony or misdemeanor, they will not be able to have their case heard in juvenile court. Now, what is excluded from that and I feel like with this new law we do this dance back and Mm -hmm. forth if this not this but maybe this this is excluded and um, it can be very confusing but that does not apply for uh, misdemeanor or infraction motor vehicles so if they have a previous conviction for a misdemeanor or an infraction motor vehicle offense that does not bar them from being in juvenile court Anything else they're convicted of, felony, misdemeanor, they cannot be in adult court. So I think it would be important for us to kind of explain the process um, in some ways that a juvenile who is, say, 14 could end up in adult court, which is what Austin is talking about. So from the age of 14 up to 14 and 15-year-olds, if they are charged with, say, murder— Let's start with murder. If they're charged with murder, they will go start in juvenile delinquency court because of their age. But then once probable cause is found on that murder charge, 
or there's been a waiver of probable cause. Because it is a murder, that case automatically has to be transferred to superior court, to adult superior court. So then that kid is being treated as an adult in adult superior court. So of course, he would be he or she would be one of those that if he got a new offense later on, he would be treated as an adult from that point forward, okay? Then you have other types of felonies um, that are lower than murder or rape that their case could be transferred. So the could be transferred cases, it goes the same way. It's probable cause is found that you start in juvenile court, probable cause is found, or either there's a waiver of probable cause, and then there's a request by the district attorney to transfer that case to superior court. Then we have a transfer hearing. So of course, as a defense attorney, I'm going to advocate and argue for my client, who is a juvenile, for his case to remain in juvenile court as opposed to being transferred. Whatever happens from that hearing, if the judge determines it should be transferred, it gets transferred, it, keep, it stays up there. If it doesn't, then it stays in juvenile court. 12, 13 and under, they can't, their cases can't be transferred um, to superior court. Like I, I had a kid who was 12 years old charged with murder. And because she was 12, her case couldn't be transferred to Superior Court. And she actually served her time in the Youth Development Center and is now out. Her two co-defendants that were, one was 14 and one was 17, they are both in adult prison right now, serving a 17 and some change sentence on second-degree murder. All right. Well, on that note, we're going to take a, another break. You're listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And Irv Joyner and I have been talking with our guests about juvenile justice in North Carolina and the juvenile justice system. And our guests are Professor Dorothy Harrison Mitchell, who is a clinical professor and supervising attorney for the NCCU Law Juvenile Law Clinic, and Austin Long, who is the juvenile project attorney with the North Carolina Office of Juvenile Defender. We're going to take a quick break, but we will be right back. We hope you stay with us. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson, and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking with Austin Long, who is the Juvenile Project Attorney with the North Carolina Office of Juvenile Defender, and Professor Dorothy Harrison Mitchell, who is the Clinical Professor and Supervising Attorney for the NCCU Law Juvenile Law Clinic. Irv, I know you had a question that you wanted to ask our uh, wonderful guest, so I'm going to turn it over to you. Yeah, you know, in, in, in light of the fact that uh, now uh, a large number of offenses uh, which uh, do, juveniles are involved in begin in school, uh, typically through the uh, school resource uh, officer or the uh, school-to-prison uh, pipeline, uh, how, you know, what is, uh, what can a parent do uh, when a child is uh, uh, involved in some indiscretion in school in order to keep that matter from becoming 
uh, a uh, an arrest or be, uh, becoming an arrest and prosecution in the criminal court system. So I can answer that. First, um, parents should be involved and go and participate in meetings at the school, be present so that the personnel and administrators actually know them and are used to working with them and they have a rapport with them and be have positive rapport with the, the administrators. <laughs> um, the other thing is that... Important point. <laughs> yes, positive. Um, so that they would, you know, the administrators want to hear from them and will take them seriously, right? The other part is that if something were to come about at school, the first thing that the parents should do is find out if the school has taken care of it or addressed that issue in school. Um, and if they have, then advocate, be very vigilant about advocating for that not to be referred to the court counsel or the Department of Juvenile Justice to be um, assessed on whether or not a petition should be filed. Um, and if it is a petition that ends up getting filed, go and talk with the court counselor and, you know, be forthright with them and have all that discussion with them because then the court counselor can decide not to bring the case to um, file a petition. But, but while it's still at the school level, definitely, you know, talk with the administrators and all of that. That reminds me, too, that as a part of what we actually have um, legislation already that includes a lot of school justice projects and school justice partnerships, this new Raise the Age, it includes more of that um, in its legislation. So there are supposed to be more funding for schools to have these like restorative justice programs in the schools, um, programs where they are addressing all of these what would be considered delinquent behavior in, at the school level so that it won't result in delinquency um, charges being brought or petitions, petitions being filed. And the other ways that a lot of this school stuff is being addressed is like here in Durham. Well, our district attorney has taken a strong stance against school-based offenses, very strong stance. So if there's a kid who's, say, charged with larceny at school or a simple assault, something simple like that, sometimes even simple possession of drugs at school, if it gets over it, if it's actually filed as a petition, if the court counsel determines that it should be filed, the district attorney's office won't prosecute those because they, she believes that those things, she doesn't want to be a part of the whole school-to-prison pipeline. Because as you um, alluded to before and, and talked about a little bit, if it starts, if the kid starts racking up a lot of delinquency charges, then they're going to probably be suspended from school, too. And then they're out. They're gonna, there's more delinquent behavior or more time for delinquent behavior to take place. And they're just racking up, racking up, racking up. And then they age out of juvenile court. Now they're a part of the adult court system, and that, that is the epitome of that whole school-to-prison pipeline. And so that we do have that as a part of that legislation. I want to make sure we point that out. And there are a lot of school systems that are taking advantage of that funding and having all these different programs so that they can address those school-based things. The other point I want to point out, too, is that the resource officers are supposed to be at the school to make sure the school is safe. They're not supposed to be there to be their typical deputy or police officer looking for crimes and looking for ways to arrest kids. Now, we all know 
that it ends up resulting in that. You have some resource officers that have been trained on mental health, been trained on different things as it relates to children and their brain development and all of that. And so they're, you know, another resource for the kids at the school. And so they don't just bring things, bring charges. But then you have a whole lot of other ones that are just being that officer and they're being that police officer or their deputy that is just looking for drugs and different things and ways to just get these kids out of the school. And they've become close to the administrators and the teachers. And so they take it upon themselves to protect the teachers and the administrators more than they see themselves as a resource to the kids. So that's my little soapbox on resources. <laughs> and, you know, that, that feeds into the concern about implicit bias mm -hmm. and just the view of black children being, you know, the perception that they're older than they are, that they, that, you know, I was thinking about, I seen you were saying your mom, and there is a different view of black children than there is of white children. Absolutely. Austin, can you talk a little bit about the inequity in the juvenile justice system as it relates to, to people of color? It's definitely there. They're disproportionately in the juvenile justice system. And I guess part of the reason is I think that attorneys are reluctant to raise issues of race. I think that they, they're doing it more mm -hmm. as they become educated and they get the confidence and the encouragement to do that, but they really need to raise the issues in court, in the court proceedings. And there's been lots of uh, research and there's been, um, there's the Raising Issues of Race uh, manual that was put out by the School of Government, which is mainly focused on adult cases, but those same things can be raised in juvenile cases as well. And that's, you know, how many more are likely to be sent to the Youth Development Center when there's an option between whether or not they go and whether or not there's some other type of disposition um, from the juvenile even being stopped initially by the law enforcement officer, whereas was that stop based on how they look? Did they decide to take it to the juvenile court counselor because it was a brown boy or girl as opposed to uh, white. So I think from the criminal process part of it, the criminal act, the criminal charge, that there's a lot that the attorney can do to raise those issues. But it, it takes encouragement, it takes confidence, mm -hmm. um, and it takes repetitive behavior because sometimes they're in jurisdictions where that they know that the judge is going to shoot them down. I don't want to hear that. But they have to do it anyway because that's what's going to make the change, make people more aware of it, and make it less tolerable. And unfortunately, the makeup of the clientele or the clients that appear in juvenile court as far as more, there being more black and brown children is no different than what we see in adult court. And so that's just... Exactly. the nature of how it is in our society right now and it's, it trickles all the way down even to juvenile court and I will go out on and venture to say that even how their disposition is entered in juvenile court is disproportionate so you may have a white child who is charged with a rape offense 
and they come to the table with they hire their own lawyer first of all so they're not even they don't even want the court appointed attorney to represent them because in their mind that's not a good lawyer when really the court appointed attorneys are really the better ones because they're the ones with all the training and everything in juvenile court and most of those that are they're hiring have never been in juvenile court before and they're coming into the courtroom but they use that influence that they have over the district attorney and they work out some kind of disposition that they should be going to YDC and YDC is Youth Development Center. I tell my students, don't laugh, but I call that, that's baby prison. Mm -hmm. That's like prison for adults. Now there's not supposed to be prison, but that's how the kids feel, it's prison. It's supposed to be a development center, but it's prison. Um, and so they should actually, they're at the level to be able to go there. But because of who their lawyer is and because, you know, all of that and all the resources that they may have available to them as a family to be able to hire this lawyer and be able to go get this extra evaluation and this other assessment by this doctor who's going to say, no, he really is not a sex offender. He doesn't have, it's not a high likelihood that he will reoffend and all of that, as opposed to me representing the, the client as a court-appointed attorney and do the math, right, mm -hmm. whatever. Um, so it's disproportionate in that way as well. And you see the same thing in adult court. Mm -hmm. You see the exact same Definitely. thing. How can we help parents to better understand the rights that these kids have when confronted either in school or out of school with uh, police authority and the uh, kinds of things that they need to help uh, their kids uh, to understand before they begin to interact in uh, the larger society, uh, particularly as they uh, engage in uh, instances of misconduct. So one of the things we, I mean, ways that we can is doing things like this, like having programs like this in which we're educating the community. Hopefully there are a lot of people that will listen and they will want more and maybe we can have more programs like this. Um, one of the things that we've been doing with the Juvenile Law Clinic, we have a partnership with Shepherd Middle School now, um, and they have a forensics and law class, so my students go over and teach those students. Um, just, actually, they're teaching them trial practice things, but we also talk to them about other areas that affect juveniles. We're having programs in which we're going to talk to the parents about different things, um, what it means to commit a larceny. We did, actually did a whole program on what sexting is and what all that includes and just different things like that for the, for the parents to be educated as well as the children. Um, other ways is to do, have church events and just different, as many places that we can educate the parents um, and have forums and different things like that in order for them to be educated in this area. Plus, remind parents that it's really not that much different than how you should act. If you get confronted by the police or if you are come into contact with a resource officer at the school, you should teach your kids about pretty much if you start with that baseline that how would I conduct myself if I have this kind of interaction or what, what I should and should not do, teaching your kids the same very thing. And actually, this is unfortunate but fortunate. Okay, so it's unfortunate that the children know have this knowledge. But it's fortunate that they do once they actually become our client. And what it is is that a lot of our kids come from families in which their family members have been involved in the criminal system a lot. So they come to the table with a whole lot of knowledge. 
it's unfortunate that they have that experience, but it's fortunate in that a lot of the conversation that we have, they're already up to speed. They know what it is. They can tell us a lot of times, oh, I know that's a class one misdemeanor. Mm-hmm. I can't get but so much for this. And you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Cause they are, they, they're, they've been involved and they understand the system. A lot of times they are not as trusting either of the system as a whole and as even as us as their attorneys because they see the, see us as a part of it. So I, I think it's also important to have forums like this in which you have all the stakeholders at the table so that they can see that, yes, we're on different sides of things. While we work together in some ways, we don't work together in other ways. And so they can really understand that whole process and hopefully prevent them from wanting it. I, I like the scared straight tactic <laughs> a lot of times. And I like the, the presentation that we do at the school where we're saying, if you do this, this could happen. Mm-hmm. Like the sexting one we did, I explained to them, if somebody sends you a picture, if you and your friend are just in your house and you think it's just a cute picture because she got on this little cute outfit and you take that picture and then you send it to one of your friends and she actually has something showing, all of y'all can get in trouble for that. Mm-hmm. And your mom can get in trouble for that because you didn't pay for that cell phone. That's mm-hmm. really not your cell phone. That's her cell phone. So then it opens up all that can of worms and they're all looking like, what? That can be a crime. Yes. Mm. I'd like to talk a little bit about the collateral consequences. So, Mm -hmm. you know, we want to the extent you have a juvenile who's involved in the juvenile justice system and we want to keep them there as opposed to being moved into adult court. But even if your matter is adjudicated within juvenile justice uh, system, there are still some collateral consequences. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that and what families can do? Okay. So they do have, um, if they've been adjudicated in juvenile court, if it's certain offenses, so certain low-level felonies and misdemeanors, we putting it plainly, those charges won't follow them. So that means that if it's in juvenile court, it's confidential, all those records are sealed, it won't follow them. Certain higher-level felonies, though, do follow them in this sense that if, like that client that I talked about that has the murder adjudication. If she was to commit some other crimes as an adult, then though that murder adjudication could actually be used for sentencing purposes for certain in certain ways. Um, they can get their cases expunged though, or, or charges expunged just like adults can. It's a little bit more involved with the expungement of juvenile charges as opposed to adult charges, but there is an expungement process that they can actually um, get their cases um get those charges expunged as well but the collateral consequences are not as great as it would be for an adult now i have had cases where for instance there um, a kid that wanted to go into the military and of course it asked or like sitting for the bar exam and it has those questions on there have you been charged or convicted of any offense even as a juvenile and all of that so in those kind of situations Yes, that's a, it's a negative collateral consequence because you have to be forthright. You have to be honest with that answer. But in it, most other ways, if it was resolved in juvenile court, it's sealed, it's confidential. They don't, it's as if it didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Now, can now, it? Oh, go ahead. No, there, there are also um, consequences such as with housing because yes. the housing authority can um, deny applications and housing for any member of the household that has been involved in any criminal activity, Um, and that's even in juvenile court. Mm -hmm. It also affects education with the student athletic um, 
departments. It prevents them from playing sports. That then that's a big deal for juveniles. Mm-hmm. And um, with the, the the applications that she mentioned, there a lot of applica- even job applications. Mm-hmm. They're getting very wise and they're putting using the word adjudication on there. Yep. Mm-hmm. Have you been adjudicated or have you even been arrested uh, on probation? Doesn't say whether it's juvenile or adult probation. So how do you answer that question? So that's another collateral consequences: housing, education and uh, employment applications. So I want to expound upon that education side. So if they're charged with certain offenses, the school has to be informed. The statute requires that the court counselor inform the school. And so that means that they could be suspended from school. Um, They could have already been suspended and not allowed to come back because of certain offenses. They can't play on the basketball team. So even before it gets to like the college level education wise, it, it actually could affect them with their school at, they, at this level as well. Hmm. All right. So the good news is it sounds like we are progressing in the right direction, mm-hmm. moving in the right direction. There's, uh, as we noted before, still much to do. But uh, the Raise the Age legislation, and Dorothy, you mentioned that, that goes into effect December 1 mm-hmm. of this year. Yes. Um, so that that's very good news. And we just need to make sure that as a community that we continue to be educated about our juveniles. Um, We really do have to all come together and support our youth because we don't want them to start down that road, that criminal justice road. And thank you both for all that you do and for taking time out of your busy schedules to be with us this evening. Thank you. You're welcome. We have with us Professor Dorothy Harrison Mitchell, and she is a clinical professor at NCCU School of Law, and she is the supervising attorney for the Juvenile Law Clinic, and Austin Long, she is the Juvenile Project Attorney with the North Carolina Office of the Juvenile Defender. And of course, we'd like to thank you, our listening audience, for taking time out of your Sunday evening and spending it with us. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you took something away and that you will share this information with your family and your community and that we will continue to do right by our youth. If you have any questions or comments, please send us an email. You can reach us at LegalEagleReview at nccu.edu. And we're happy to announce that you can now find this show on iTunes in podcast form. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next week, stay informed and engaged.